Hi, and welcome to She Geeks Out, a podcast where we geek out about all the things. I'm Rachel. And I'm Felicia. Felicia Jadzak. Hello. Yes. Rachel Murray. Hi. <laughs> um, it's been so long since we've actually done a podcast episode. We're so excited about this one. We like to do special editions. So uh, we're so, so excited to have uh, some lovely folks from Perkins uh, Access here, and they're going to talk all about accessibility. Um, we will, uh, we'll just, I feel like we just need to get right into it because there's so Let's much do to, to do. We've got Taylor Snook. Uh, digital Accessibility Consultant, and Jennifer Segalin, Director of Strategic Partnerships with us. So without further ado, let's just get on in it. Let's just start with the basics. Let's just, I will, let's hear about your story, some of your, what brought you to this work, and we'll go from there. Great. Um, this is Jennifer. And really for me, um, I grew up with a family member that uh, was losing their sight. Um, and you know, I think that that really influenced some of the decisions um, I made about my career. Even early on, <clears throat> I started in the area of closed captioning and audio description, um, mm-hmm. supporting individuals with sensory disabilities. And that really took me in so many interesting directions. Then ending up today where I am uh, at Perkins Access and you know, it really um, just is is meaningful work. It's wonderful to uh, feel like we're making a difference, not just um, with organizations today and, and kind of the products and services they're creating, but I feel that we're also helping products and services of the future um, because we're really working on the cutting edge of technology. Right. This is Taylor. Um, I love this question because I I feel like I have a very unique roundabout way of how I got into this work. Uh, My undergraduate degree was in computer science, and I really loved the technical aspect of different jobs that I worked in. But I ended up going back to get my master's degree in social work. And then from there, I learned about Perkins International, which is one of the divisions at Perkins School for the Blind. And I started working there about nine years ago, and that's where I really became um, passionate for this kind of work. But I was really sort of missing that that technical side of um, my brain, I guess. So when Perkins Access was forming a little uh, five or six years ago, it presented a great opportunity for me to sort of touch and take advantage of both of my, you know, passions and my backgrounds. And so that's sort of how I came to work at Perkins Access. And um, I've been at Perkins for a little over nine years, and I've been at Perkins Access for almost five. And I really feel like I finally found my, my, my niche here. I love that. And actually, that's a great bridge for our next question, Taylor. This is Felicia speaking, if anyone uh, is unfamiliar with my voice, who's a podcast listener. Um, and so some of our listeners may be really familiar with the Perkins School for the Blind, which is world renowned. I actually have a family member from India who's been there, which, um, you know, it's it's literally all over the world. People know what this is. Folks may not be as 
familiar with or aware of Perkins Access. And so I would love for you, Taylor, or you, Jen, if you want to hop back on in to tell us a little bit more about what is Perkins Access. You mentioned it's formed about five or six years ago. How did that come about and what does it focus on these days? Yeah, absolutely. So this is Taylor again. Um, and yes, we I, since having worked at Perkins International, I know that we have a really large presence in India. So you're right, Perkins has a great reputation. And I think we, as a school and an organization, we're really committed to making the world a more accessible place. Um, we've been, um, Perkins began in 1829. And since then, we've obviously had a huge, huge impact on individuals with visual impairments and other disabilities through education and innovation. In short, I would say that the mission of the school is to prepare our students for the world. And the mission of Perkins Access really complements that and that we're trying to prepare the world for our students. You know, it's a really uh, fantastic department. Um, you know, I think that is really part of the way Perkins has always looked at um, addressing critical needs. And we're, you know, like all of the other departments um, committed to really staying ahead of the curve. Um, and, and our unique consulting practice is one that works with organizations to bring not only the expert perspective, but also the user perspective, um, working with our colleagues across the organization. And taking that combined um, knowledge and sharing it and guiding organizations as they're designing and developing products and services. Um, that's really, uh, you know, our strength and helping them create strategies so that they are addressing accessibility, not just for their technologies, but also for their organization as a whole. Love that. This is so, it's so great that you shared that. So thank you for giving some more context. Um, it's funny, Taylor, when you were talking about how I loved hearing Perkins School preparing students for the world, Perkins Access to prepare uh, the world for its students. It's funny because Felicia and I have a similar uh, approach to the work that we do where we have the community side, which is, I guess, sort of that supporting the folks that are in the, the world, uh, the work world, and then on the DEI training side, um, giving folks the skills uh, to, to uh, help others from marginalized identities. So I love that. Um, and I think this is a really good opportunity for us to talk about what exactly digital accessibility is and what does that mean for folks who are listening? This is Taylor. I can talk a little bit about that. I would say, um, you know, it's complex, but in the simplest of terms, digital accessibility means designing and developing a digital world that is inclusive of everyone. So this, this is involves websites, native mobile applications, all digital ex experiences, reading documents, et cetera. These things need to be usable by all individuals, regardless of their age, their ability, or the way they access digital content. Um, and I'd say that when, accessibility isn't part of the design and development process, that's where barriers begin to form, which makes things, you know, really difficult for 
or sometimes impossible for anyone um, with a disability to really engage and interact as needed. We're living in such a digital world that these things have to be accessible. You know, in the, in the past, there's a large focus on making sure physical spaces are accessible, um, which obviously is still critical and important, but our world is changing to be so much more digital. And now we need to make sure that those um, experiences are equally accessible and engaging for all individuals. You know, I, as you were talking, Taylor, I was thinking through in my own brain about different examples of digital accessibility. And I loved your last point, which is I do think, you know, for a lot of us, we might be thinking physical first, because that's what we sort of have been conditioned to think about. But the digital world is, of course, so important to also be thinking about. And so I'd love for, um, for you two to maybe give some examples or share a little bit more about how folks benefit from digital accessibility beyond the obvious and what that actually looks like. So for me, you know, when I'm hearing you talk about that, I'm thinking about things like, um, you know, for folks who are visually impaired, um, you know, descriptions of images in, you know, social media platforms or on websites or um, alt text, things like that. Is that what you're speaking to? Is that a piece of it? Would love to dig into that a little bit further. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say that um, there's there's things that are, are factored in to digital accessibility that might target certain audiences. But for, in a large part, digital accessibility benefits all users. Um, and, the, and that physical accessibility that I was talking about is, is a really good example. So we think about curb cuts or wheelchair ramps and how those have made things more accessible um, in the physical world. But they also, they really have benefit for all different types of people. They, you know, if you're pushing a stroller, you might be probably going to benefit from a ramp or a curb cut, riding a bicycle, you're moving heavy, heavy objects, um, all types of things. So those are, you know, very beneficial for everyone, but obviously at the same time, a very critical um, tool for individuals who have motor impairments. Uh, also, I'd add that more recent curb cuts have, you'll see there's uh, sort of a rubbery surface with tactile dots on it. And, and those are have been added so that individuals who have visual impairments, so they can locate crosswalks. So I think that's curbs up, curb cuts are a great example of universal design, something that benefits everyone, that different people's needs can be factored in to create one approach that's great for all individuals. Uh, another uh, example of something that, you know, is, is critical to accessibility, but really benefits, benefits everyone. And I'll actually let Jennifer talk about this, but uh, captions and transcripts are something that I think everyone can relate to and everyone has used at some point. Yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, we're really at a high level, we're talking about you know, digital websites and applications and really all of these different ways that you can get information and book an appointment. So digital just is around us in, in every aspect of life. Um, something that was really interesting, uh, not, not so long ago, um, I had a visit to um, 
our building on the Perkins campus and uh, walking into the building, there was a machine um, to the left, which um, spoke as I, I walked in and, and passed it and asked um, for me to uh, turn and have my temperature checked. And the um, I didn't have to touch anything. And the voice um, was response um, came from the machine without absolutely any physical interaction um, and was also placed at the right um, height for someone who um, you know would be in a, in a wheelchair, for example. And it was just, you know, this felt like this, it's a digital experience that was just so inclusive and, and timely. I mean, just very, um, had such a nice way of, of requesting something <laughs> that we're all starting to get used to um, and, and was, you know, not invasive in any way. It was just a really great, I, I was so excited to see this great example of just a really inclusive experience. Oh, I love that. Yeah, there's so many, I feel like there's so many new innovations and initiatives that have come out even in just the last year around accessibility. And a concept that I've been just um, thinking about very recently is this idea of design justice. And, you know, in our work as well, we talk a lot about not just, you know, things like accessibility, but also um, the equity piece of it. And so are we thinking about this equitably? And I think it was you, Taylor, who mentioned the captions and transcripts as one aspect of the digital piece of how we're thinking about all this. And that's very um, personal for me since I'm hard of hearing. So I love a good caption. I love a good subtitle. <laughs> and, you know, it's something that, you know, we're chatting over Zoom right now. I've got the transcript going live. It's not perfect, but it's there, which it wasn't earlier when we made that initial shift to you know, remote work back in March, 2020, when the pandemic really hit. I'm curious to know from me, from your perspective, especially for those who are maybe just starting out in their thinking around accessibility, digital accessibility, what are some first steps that folks can take? I'm going to take that one. This is Jennifer. I think there's a tactical answer to that question. Um, and, and, and I'll let Taylor kind of jump into that. But what we've seen with our clients um, is that while they may be addressing something related to how a patient um, is going to um, find a doctor or someone is able to purchase um, a product, um, use public transportation, so you know, get a T-pass, those really important uh, steps, the first kind of step really comes down to having a high level commitment from the top of the organization, from leadership to set requirements and a policy. So we are fortunate to often engage, you know, when there's the buy-in is there and everyone is, you know, on board and it's, you know, that's, we have a great time you know, really helping bring those experiences to life and make them accessible for everyone. Um, but really one of the first things that an organization, I think if they're not at that point is thinking about their strategy and thinking about how to um, kind of get 
this, the key stakeholders um, educated about what accessibility means and how are they supporting their employees and their customers? How, how are users impacted by um, what, you know, the digital experiences that, that they have? So I'll let Taylor kind of talk about one of the ways that we, when we first start working with an organization that we, we answer some of those questions um, and it does help um, when a policy doesn't exist, it does help to maybe provide some context about what do we need to start thinking about? Yeah, this is Taylor. So I think that the organizational piece is, is huge. Digital accessibility can definitely be overwhelming for individuals who aren't uh, experienced with it. I think it's one way my, my social work degree comes in handy because I try to remember that, you know, I've been doing this for uh, several years. And, and when you first learn about all the ins and outs, it can seem like a lot. So one, one of the things we typically start with is a high level review of applications or websites. Um, we call this Perkins our Perkins insights and, and which are two core parts of accessibility testing in general. Um, one part being sort of an expert review where someone on my team or myself will go in and look at the application and look at what are some sort of global issues that we're seeing across the website or app. Um, something that you know could hopefully easily be, they can get started working on um, to just sort of jumpstart the process. And another critical part of the insights report is we do testing with native users of assistive technology. And we come up with a couple key use cases that you know, are informed by common tasks that users might come to perform on your website. So for example, if you have an e-commerce site, um, are people able to conduct a search for a product? Are they able to create an account? Are they able to add something to their shopping cart and, and complete the checkout process from beginning uh, to end? So those are some use cases. And user testing is, is, is so important. It's something that can often be overlooked by just focusing on the guidelines or sort of the technical requirements. Um, but as a, a sighted individual, for example, I have biases. I can, I know how to use assistive technology. I can look at the source code. All of those things are important, but I'm not relying on a screen reader on a regular basis. And people have different approaches to how, I mean, all users have different approaches on how they access content. And so it's really important to get that perspective and feedback. And so that's the other part of our insight that we sort of start with. Um, another uh, critical thing is, is training. Um, actually, Jennifer, I'll, I'll pass this off to you. You can talk about training. Great. Um, so, you know, I think when we talk about that strategy component, um, we're also looking to help particularly, you know, some large organizations that have um, a range of digital properties we're looking, and one of the first steps um, that is really helpful is, is around prioritization. So thinking about um, what experiences are impacting um, you know, the largest group of users and that prioritization process then helps us to define where to um, recommend Perkins Insights or other activities. And often the other activities um, include training uh, because training 
that Perkins Access provides, we, our approach is role-based training. We want to help designers, developers, content creators, show everyone who has a, a role to play um, related to accessibility. Um, we have accessibility for marketers. We have um, accessibility to help people write image descriptions. So you name it, I could go on and on um, about all of the training, but it really is the way to build that knowledge into the organization. And that to, to me and, and I, you know, into our, our organization is about inclusion. So you're, you're thinking about um, it becoming just the part of the fabric of the organization and part of what you do um, on a daily basis. So getting that education is, is one of the ways um, that, that that can be done. I love that. And that's so similar to how we like to approach our work as well, really thinking about not having, in our case, DEI be a side thing or an add-on, but truly baked into the fabric of an organization. So very much in alignment there. Um, I'm really interested by the whole idea around the prioritization with, you know, looking at the different groups of users and use cases and sort of trying to to triage that if you will and i'm i'm curious if that ever um has any sort of like pushback around that because i could imagine you know just pulling a scenario out of my head like if i'm someone who's not able to truly access a needed website, for example, and then I'm within that organization and they're telling me, oh, you're on the list, but you're number five down. I might not be super thrilled about that. <laughs> and so I'm just curious how that how that plays out, because I know, um, again, bringing like a disability lens to it, I know that that's a huge conversation, especially given the pandemic around, you know, access to care and who gets, you know, what decisions are made about different types of people. And so I'm curious if you've seen or heard or experience rather, um, you know, pushback around that or people sort of are like, yes, we get it. We're just happy you're looking at this at all. That That's a, a great question. And one that um, I, I do think of often because prioritization can be a word that might indicate that some activities are more important or, or um, you know, going to be addressed uh, and others are not. And I think the way that we address prioritization there are limited resources, um, time and money um, for any organization. And so we take and create a framework, um, work with an organization to really look for the areas where um, the, the largest number of users are impacted. Um, and we're looking for fixes that will help as many people as possible. There's also ways while we're addressing some of these critical areas with um, you know, the, the larger impact where we can also address low hanging fruit and begin um, through some more, you know, kind of a, a different process to address all of um, the activities. So an example would be um, at a university, there may be applications and websites that are really critical to student success. There are other um, websites that are, are as critical to the organization. Um, and we, instead of putting kind of a, a expert testing um, for those activities, we select fewer use cases as a starting point. And then the next step is moving up into kind of additional testing. So it's 
prioritization is really about saying we have to put some um, efforts in different buckets and, and different levels of effort. So we're, we're believe that all content should be accessible. Um, and then we also encourage organizations to ensure that there's ways for employees, um, customers to always be able to communicate and get the um, you know, contact and support that they need um, in those cases where you know, the accessibility is, is not yet built in. Taylor, do you wanna add to that? Um, I was just gonna add that sort of like a more granular level in terms of like if I'm looking at a single website and I'm prioritizing issues, um, it's not necessarily about like, you know, what disability is impacted, but, you know, something to factor in as Jennifer, Jennifer sort of mentioned is, you know, low hanging fruit and how, um, how much time and effort is it going to take to remediate an issue? If it's something really quick, you know, it might be slightly lower impact, but let's just get it done because eventually we want to get everything done. Uh, and then the other piece of it is, um, how significant of a barrier is it in terms of if this is, you know, if I can't, you know, without using a mouse, if I can't click on a menu and access all of the content in that menu, that's a really critical barrier for me. Um, or I can't access the link that leads me to my shopping cart. That's a critical barrier um, where something is like, you know, a, a page you know, a decorative image doesn't have alternative text, that's an issue because, you know, users might not know that that's a decorative image, but that's not going to block them or prevent them from, from using the website. So, you know, everything, we want everything to be addressed, but that's sort of some of the, the thought process that goes into prioritizing um, things in terms of remediation. Yeah, thank you. And I wanted to just highlight, um, back when you would have talked about educating um, people about what accessibility means. It's just a shout out for your own website, which by the way, Felicia and I have been joking how we just want to basically take it all and it's so beautifully done. But there is a knowledge center on there, which has a ton of really great resources too, which just wanted to just want to throw that out there. Um, but I would love to, to talk to, and <laughs> the low hanging fruit is so perfect because it is really how you get people to, to start to think about like, oh, we can do this, but there are still going to be some folks I'm sure that are resistant to making any change and making it a priority at all. We'd love to hear about um, how to address uh, the, the folks that maybe who aren't bought in. So I uh, work with most of the organizations looking for guidance and wanting to you know, learn about engagements and how a consulting group like ours can support them. So I, I run across certainly challenges. Um, they're often related to budgets and resources. Um, and a big one is, is sometimes that there's a misconception that, that only a small percentage of users are impacted um, by accessibility. So when I you know, I think that our organization believes is that the cost certainly is there when you're retrofitting an experience. Um, so that that is is a reality. And what we encourage is to think about building the accessibility in, 
you were going to reduce the cost because you're building an inclusive experience and you're not going back and trying to make something work that will not work for all of your users and is often um, just you know, a very exhausting experience. So that's one of the, uh, the barriers that, that we run into. Um, yeah, well, really, I also wanna tie back to the whole prioritization conversation. <laughs> and um, it's, it's so important that when you, you know, we work with organizations and they have tons of content and they're like, well, especially universities, I say, some of it is legacy. It's very old. They don't want to take it down, um, but it's just not feasible to remediate everything. Um, so in that case, you know, we would recommend, you know, is it's legacy content. You have to have a way to provide this to someone, um, an accessible version of this to someone who needs it, but you might have, you know, provide a way for them to contact someone and you are responsible for getting them an accessible version. I'm thinking mostly of documents within, you know, a, a quick turnaround. Um, but then it's really important to focus on, on new content. And but when you're going through a web design, I can't say it enough how important it is to start thinking about accessibility. Um, we and it's, it's so exciting when I get projects to do, that are doing a redesign because um, we just get in right at the wireframe stage and start reviewing things. A lot of people think you have to have a website that's at least interactive in order for you to start testing things. Um, but what I say all the time is you could you know, sketch out a website on a cocktail napkin and I can look at it and I can tell you where some potential... Um, problem areas might be. Um, and it's, you know, it's hard, you know, especially with the design phase, you want things to look good. You don't want to compromise. So our goal is to never come in and say, oh, you can't do that. That's, you know, that's going to cause so many problems. Our, our goal is to say, hey, this, you know, just so you know, this is going to take a little bit more additional level of expert and expertise and level of effort and time um, to make sure that this is accessible. Um, but as long as we talk about it now and get ahead of it, we'll make that work. Um, but remediating a site that is already fully built out can is, is definitely more costly. Um, but if we get in at the beginning, we have you know trainings and we review at the wireframe stage, the visual design stage, um, that that's like key and it really can be cost-effective and um, to Jennifer's point about this perception that there aren't that many, you know, it's a small population of individuals, um, but that's, that's really not true. Um, there was a, a survey done by the CDC in 2018 where one in four adults in the United States reported having some form of disability. Mm -hmm. um, obviously that's, there's you know, a, a range of different types of disability, but we're talking about a quarter of the population. Um, and then looking at um, older adults, like uh, I think almost 50%, I think of adults over 65 have some form of disability. So um, it really, and, and the aging population is, mm -hmm. is, I think, one of the fastest growing populations in the United States, um, which is great. People are living longer, but um, they are, you know, living with disabilities. So 
it, it's just, it's not a small population. And um, again, I'll, I'll always go back to, you're not just, you know, making a better experience for what's a really large population of people with disabilities. You're making a great experience for all of your users. Yeah, and, and I thought of one, one other point and, and that is the, we hear from organizations, they're resisting, there is a frustration around accessibility because they've taken the approach of, of testing, um, you know, and as, as Taylor was saying, kind of we can start so much earlier in the process, but waiting until you're testing a, a, a product or service that's, that's complete is, go, is meaning that you are going to have to do the retrofit. Um, and so that leads to frustration by organizations that, that find themselves addressing the accessibility of a website. And then two years later, a year later, they have to start all over. And that's really frustrating. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's like, how do I do this right is the question that, um, that I love to get because, you know, I believe that our group is able to educate and help designers and developers and you know the the people within an organization that are procuring products to say this is something we just have to think about you know as we talked about earlier this just needs to be part of what we do and once it's built in to your process and your procedures and your designers and your developers know the best practices that it becomes um, it becomes less overwhelming and as an organization, you start to recognize this is not, uh, you don't have to experience that frustration because now you're on the right path. Oh, I love that. Two thoughts. Uh, one, first, Taylor, I love that you brought in the aging population and immediately made me think that this is about ageism as well uh, when we're talking about this. So, um, all the isms and, um, and then the other piece I, I want to bring in. So, uh, I am a geek at heart. And prior to this work, my, one of my favorite things to do in my job was migrating websites from one platform to another. And, um, and so I can absolutely relate to the retrofitting, moving things over, migrating people, freaking out. I personally loved it, but I love change and I'm a weirdo for that. Um, but I'm curious because, you know, when I did it, it was actually really, really hard. And I think there's so many tools out there now to make life a little bit easier. So I'm wondering just sort of in general, do you, are there sort of tools or platforms that you recommend that might be helpful to make it a little bit easier to build accessible sites or? This is Taylor. I could sort of take a crack at that. It's so important to do your research upfront. Um, another thing that we help I'd say particularly with our higher ed institutions who are just dealing with so many different platforms and third parties is helping them to sort of go through the vetting process with vendors to make sure that whether if you're, you know, procuring a, a product, making sure that they have done their due diligence to make sure that product is accessible. If you're going to be, if you are going through a web redesign or you're, you're changing your design vendor or your develop, developer vendor, it's important to ask questions about accessibility to them. And you want to also just 
make sure that you know what you're asking and what an appropriate response is. Because unfortunately, what our experience has been is uh, vendors are not always truthful about their experience when it comes to accessibility. They are starting to hear questions about this more often and they realize that it can be a, a barrier in, in terms of getting a contract. So they might, we'll just say, bend the truth a little bit. So that's one thing we help some of our clients do when they're looking at, at vendors is sort of, you know, these are the questions you should be asking. Let's review those and see if what follow-up questions we need to ask. Are, what kind of testing are they doing? Are they testing with native users? Are they conducting manual testing? Are they using automated tools for testing, which is, you know, helpful, but, you know, automated tools can usually catch 30, maybe 40% of issues on a good day. So it's really those making sure an organization is, is approaching testing from those in those three ways. And there, and there certainly are, well, I won't, I'm not going to name names. There certainly are some platforms that from our experience have prioritized accessibility more than others. Mm, so mysterious. Yeah, so interesting. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised, but I am a little shocked about vendors lying about this because it just seems like something that would come out so obviously that they wouldn't know these areas um well, I mean, in defense have, of like, a list of people you're like don't work with these folks anymore <laughs> yeah well in in defense of you know the developers and the designers sometimes it's it's like on the sales side sales side that they're um who are, you know, they, they don't, they know less about accessibility. And so they're more likely to say, oh yeah, we, we know about that. Um, or we're, you know, we're making sure we're, we're on top of that uh, without maybe consulting with um, others. I, I find that as well, um, just that they're often overselling their capabilities. Um, and, and often it's, accessibility is complex. And so they, there's a, um, I think an assumption that you can do some of the testing without relying on an expert or a user. It's, it's fairly complex, um, in, in general, um, to complete, uh, all that information and share it. Um, and so even, even getting the information can be complex and how to understand it as well. So on both sides. <laughs> Um, I'm curious, so we've touched on this a little bit already um, throughout our conversation so far, but I'd like to just maybe really talk about, especially the last year and a half or so, you know, we have the pandemic that's impacted a lot of folks in terms of moving into the digital virtual remote space. And have you seen um, any trends in the space because of that or um, any considerations that have been impacted specifically by the pandemic? Curious how that's kind of layered into all of this for you. Yeah, this is Taylor. I'm happy to talk about that. I think, you know, critical activities were suddenly all, you know, moved online. And um, so the call for accessibility grew. Uh, un unfortunately, I think, you know, it, things happened so quickly that there wasn't 
that opportunity to sort of vet different product products or make sure that accessibility was part of QA testing or really factored in. So that's unfortunate, but it's also, you know, on the positive side, more things are available online or more things are available virtually. But um, so for example, you know, say um, your, your bank is, is closed because of the pandemic or you, you know, for whatever reason, you have compromised immunity, whatever, you don't want to go to the grocery store anymore. Um, now there's, you know, people are making sure they have apps and you can have home delivery, delivery and all of those things um, are great. But imagine if those services that are now so critical aren't accessible. So obviously that can be, you know, frustrating for some and also just a critical block to essential services for others. And this could also be, you know, healthcare, virtual appointments with doctors, all of these things. It's so important. Um, it's great that they're now available, but it's also critical that they're made accessible. Um, I think along those same lines, there's, I know of a lot of people with disabilities who already, you know, relied heavily on home delivery services prior to the pandemic. Um, you can imagine for some people with disabilities going to a grocery store can pre present an, a number of challenges. So having home delivery available and being able to order on apps was great. Um, so, but unfortunately then everyone's using it and they're updating the apps and they're making changes and, and if accessibility is not factored in, then you're creating new barriers that they weren't having to deal with before. Um, so I guess, yeah, the silver lining is that things are, more things are available remotely and digitally, um, but at the same time, they accessibility has to be factored in. Um, I'd also, one thing to mention with regard to the pandemic is, Obviously, so many people started to work remotely from home. Um, this is something that, you know, for years, people with disabilities um, or disability advocates have been um, pushing for um, to have that opportunity and that flexibility to work from home. Um, and for whatever reason, so many companies were reluctant to do that prior to the pandemic. But when push came to shove, it, it happened. And for a lot of them, it was very successful. Some of them aren't going back to that. Um, and this is, can be really beneficial for individuals um, who, you know, are sort of more restricted in terms of transportation. Um, so opening up more employment opportunities to them. At, at the same time, there are some individuals who it's harder for them to work remotely. There might be things um, at their place of employment that, that help them do their job, or uh, it's easier to meet with individuals in person. If you have a hearing impairment, it can be important to be able to see someone's lips when they're talking um, to get pick up on those additional cues. So, you know, some of those things can happen over Zoom and happen remotely, but there's also, um, you know, benefits to being in person as well. So, that's really like a mixed bag answer, but um, basically I think there are, are things to, you know, be grateful for that have, have come out of this. And, but there is maybe important to take some time now to make sure and, and go back and 
ensure that all of those things that have been developed out of this are, are accessible and, and beneficial to all users. Yeah, I think, you know, it really, for me, what I was thinking of as you were talking, Taylor, was when we made that initial jump to sort of, you know, everyone going virtual all at once, very suddenly it was so reactive because that's what it was. And now that we have the benefit of not having to act so quickly to go back into, you know, I like to think not go back to normal, but what's our new normal, what's our new reality and how can we really be thoughtful about it as opposed to just say, oh, well, let's just go back to the way it was because we know that, you know, beyond everything that you've already just said, we're even seeing more people coming into the ranks of those who have disabilities because of the pandemic. And that's another whole area of, you know, long-term impact and effects that we don't know how that's gonna play out. Um, but yeah, that's all so, so interesting. And I think it just really speaks to this idea of how do we really think about it from all aspects and all different use cases and not just fixate on one area or just the low hanging fruit or just the thing that impacts you the most. So whew, we talked about a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and just to piggyback on that, I just think it's, you know, it's, it's that, that, that intentionality just being so intentional and it takes work and effort. And I think, you know, kind of to your, when, when you said, you know, for whatever reason, companies were so resistant to have people be able to work remotely. I think it's just because it was change and it was different and it, and it would take effort. And then it wasn't until we were forced to do it, that it happened to, that, that it had to happen. Um, so it's, this work is hard. And it's important. And so I just want to say thank you for the for the work that you do. Uh, it's really important. And thanks for this conversation. Yeah. Any any final thoughts? Any final things we haven't touched on? I'd love to give you all a chance to plug anything. Yeah. Well, there was one more thought I had that I wish I maybe can be edited into an earlier segment. Um, this is Taylor. You know, I keep, I know I'm beating the curb cut example to death, but um, when we talk about, you know, shifting left, so making sure things are, things are so much more efficient when you factor them in from the beginning and also the importance of training. Um, it reminds me that, you know, when I went to college, was in college studying computer science, I never learned anything about accessibility. It was, it was not, there was no course on it. It was not covered in any of my courses and, you know, accessibility and, and web accessibility has been around, around for well over 30 years. Um, and the web accessibility guidelines have been around forever. So certainly while I was in school. Um, and I just think, you know, architects are know about wheelchair ramps and, you know, designing elevators and having certain things marked with Braille. These are, I think, hopefully at this point, second nature. And, and my hope is that in the future with, you know, integrating this into college courses, certifications, but also the training that we're doing, the more people we can train, the more that this can become second nature. And it's not such an, an afterthought and something that is so costly and time consuming because we're always trying to fix things. We're always trying to apply band-aids to things that 
we could have had it right up front. I think my last comment is that, you know, it's really exciting um, to, to see the direction that that accessibility is taking because organizations really are embracing um, inclusion and embracing the, the work that needs to be done to, to support everyone um, across the organization. And the, what we're finding is that what what that means for digital accessibility is that the user and that user perspective is a huge part of accessibility now. And so Perkins Access, you know, I, I think our work is helping organizations to not just check the box of accessibility, but it's also what's the experience that your users and your employees are having is, you know, can someone apply for a job? Are your customers able to purchase a product or take a course? That's a real, a real piece of what they're, you know, kind of coming to us to, to get help with. Um, so it's, it's, I, I, it's just an exciting uh, time to be in accessibility um, because, you know, this is now a time where we're ideally all embracing everyone's unique um, capabilities and, and that's you know something I, I'm proud of um, being part of Perkins Access, uh, and and certainly we try to share that information on our website at PerkinsAccess.org. Yeah, let's get that website out there. That's right. <laughs> um, Rachel mentioned already, but yeah, so many amazing resources that you all have there with um, just even looking at it, the Knowledge Center. So if you're listening, check that out. Thank you both so much. This has been so informative and wonderful to connect and chat with you. And thank you for sharing some of your your experiences, your thoughts, and your viewpoints. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank Thank you. you. Thanks to all our listeners for spending some time geeking out with us. If you enjoyed listening, please rate and review us on iTunes. Every review helps. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next interview. And tell all your friends. New episodes drop every Tuesday. (laughs) Check us out at She Geeks Out on all the things. And in case you're wondering what those things are, they are Twitter, Insta, FB, otherwise known as Facebook, LinkedIn, and our website, of course. Bye, Rachel. Bye, Felicia. Bye, Felicia.